This is the right direction where we talk to professional storytellers and writers and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, AG McDonald, and let's get started with the show. <laughs> All right, we are here with Sarah Epstein, who is the author of Small Spaces and Deep Water. Um, so Sarah, Hi, AG. how are you going? <laughs> Good, thanks. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I'm a YA author. I came to this via um, doing a full 25-year career of graphic design. So um, it's not like I actually um, went and did an MFA or any type of fiction writing before I decided to pick up writing fiction. Um, But I've always had a background in creative arts and I did write and draw a lot when I was... um, a kid. And so I've just always sort of been a, a, an all-round creative. Uh, but um, yeah, so I've sort of got into YA um, as my debut novel and I've released a second YA book now. Um, but I'm also interested in writing picture books. I'm interested in adult books, middle grade, pretty much everything across the board. Um, it's just that um, my debut novel happened to be YA. So that's where I am at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess talking about graphic design, like, does that translate across at all to your writing or was it, are they two completely different skills that are mutually exclusive or? Well, interestingly, it does. Um, It's probably more so just because I picture everything quite, um, you know, I'm sort of a a visual visual artist. So yeah, in a visual sense. So, you know, I I do picture my scenes when I write um, quite, um, you know, uh, graphically and you know with with sort of like um you know cinematography in mind almost you know it helps me sort of set the scene in my head and I sort of do use um I think probably the way I plan my books uses methods that sort of hark from my um design background so I tend to often map things out physically on paper where I'll sort of break down my chapters and I might colour code things, um, highlight characters with different colours so that I can see where they're appearing. So I can kind of get a bit of a roadmap visually of my book rather than just keeping it all inside my head or all inside a Word document um, or note cards or whatever. And I also do actually often write on index cards. I might stick things up on the wall. I might shuffle them around or lay them all out on the ground. You know, it's just um, probably just a a bit of a different way of working than maybe some other writers might work. Um, But I think probably the visual design background helps me mostly with um, just sort of picturing, I suppose it sounds a bit of a cliche, but just in the way I paint my scenes and you know uh, decorate my manuscripts with my scenes and the way I picture things quite visually but I mean authors all do that anyway it's not necessarily my art background that that helps no, with but, that but the art background definitely helps with that um I know I, yeah, I it does yeah I don't have a huge um graphic design background like you but I've always been interested in graphic design and um you know I've I've recently been working um on writing a book together with um another person that I know online and um, we started working things out and I did a similar thing that I put up pictures of what I think the characters look like. And then I would connect them with these colored lines and each one had, you know, what Mm. connections the characters have. And so like, I I need that visual style for me to actually picture the story in my head too. So I totally get where you're coming from with that. 
Yeah, I think it sounds like you probably work quite similarly to me um, in that it, you know, it helps you keep track of where you're at with everybody. Um, because, you know, one thing when you're writing is often if you've got a bit of a um, cast of characters, sometimes you lose track of, of some of them and what they're doing, even though they're secondary characters and you never want to be accused by readers of just, you know, having these, um, you know, kind of weak secondary characters that are there just to kind of pretty up the scene. You know, you need everybody to be doing things. You need everybody to be active. They've all got to have their own motivations. And so um, otherwise there's probably no point in having that character, but then you've got a very um, unrealistic book if you've got a, a main character who doesn't have any of these connections. And of course, you know, their connections with other people are what drive them to make decisions. And, you know, so you really need to kind of look at your secondary cast of characters and keep all the balls in the air. And I find that visually, um, you know, doing that visually for me with literally colour coding chapters and scenes and characters, I can just get a snapshot. Um, I can lay it all out on my desk and I can get a snapshot of who is doing what. And I haven't seen this person for a while. And, you know, because the other thing is as well that, you know, readers often find that they do, um, you know, they might get bogged down in the middle of the book um, because the author's got bogged down in the middle of the story. And there are people who haven't appeared or, for instance, if you have an antagonist that you kind of need to keep appearing and keep their thread going um, you can't just have them sort of appear at the beginning and then turn up again at the end because readers go oh, oh you yeah, know, where, where's, yeah. yeah where, where's that come from that's out of left field you know and so therefore um, you know you really have sort of dropped the ball there because you need to keep the reader you need to keep having people like antagonists appearing so that when the reader gets to the end it's a very logical conclusion for them and that's probably you know something especially uh, important with writing mysteries and thrillers and psychological thrillers um because well, particularly because somebody... i guess you've got those um you know you've got those little tidbits and like you know red herrings and things that you've got to put yes. through the entire story so it's got to be a far more like meticulously planned Yes. And, you know, when, and it's the same with, you know, with writing something like a psychological thriller, you know, um, peppering those clues through is very important. Um, and also obviously red herrings that may not go anywhere, but they have to seem logical when the reader is reading them. And so I can get a bit of a snapshot where um, if, if I've got a certain thread going through my psychological thriller and I kind of need to keep touching on it and it might be a red herring, it might be a character that I'm pointing the reader to that isn't necessarily, um, you know, who the big bad guy is at the end. I need to kind of keep weaving that person in in a logical way because if I just drop them in early and then I kind of forget about them and or I, I, I get them to pop up a bit later you know readers they just get really suspicious or they get really cynical and they just think oh th this is really obvious I see what the author's doing there and so therefore I failed you know and that that means that, that I'm not uh, kind of distracting them with that red herring or I'm not giving them a believable thread. Um, and so the uh, one way to do that that is really good is just to, um, for me, just to colour code those characters so that I can write write down my chapter um, breakdown and I can um, colour code things like that, the clues and the characters and where I'm peppering them through. Yeah, and I guess just, just to create that sort of snapshot visual organisation, mm. which, which is kind of... Um, as I say, what I do, and I even do that um, with editing sometimes, like 
sometimes mm. with my editing, like when you go to a line edit or something, you might, I might actually highlight uh, each sentence in a different color, just so I can look and see, do I have too many sentences that are really long? Is there oh, a variety? Yeah. Like, you know, sometimes that visual element can really help break up something. Cause you look at these things that you've written and you become so close to them that you need something to, to break it up and to sort of, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. bring it back. It's, it's like when you're reading and yeah. And, and when, you know, it's that same old thing with writers that we often, you know, we read our work and there's typos in there and we keep reading our brain just glosses over that same typo yeah. over and over again. And we do that with sentence structure as well. And, you know, we, we can't see that we've got these um, crutch words that we keep using or, or a crutch word, you know, crutch sentence structure and, you know, or just fragmented sentences or something. And, but for, from the outside, you know, somebody looking in will read it and think, oh, that's really repetitive, but it's hard for us to see. So that's actually a really good idea. I don't quite go that in depth myself um, with this, you know, highlighting kind of paragraph structure or certain sentences or whatever, but it's, I absolutely get how that could be really helpful. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I'm amazed that I, I mean, I'm not amazed that people don't work that way, but for me, I can't see working any other way, but that's just because I've got that kind of brain that I, I do have to think visually and I do think, you know, funnily enough in colour and, um, you know, it really does highlight areas for me that um, it makes it easier for me to work, which other people have obviously got their own techniques, but for me, it just, um, I, I guess, using that sort of, um, art background it really helps me in that way and then in a very uh, much more practical way my art background helps me with um, you know like kind of expanding so once the story is out in the world um, it helps me kind of expand that world a little bit just in terms of creating promo material or um, you know art prints or anything like that that I want to kind of tie in even book swag that I create or when I have a book launch I like to create little goodie bags and I design things like badges and stickers and and all of that kind of thing so you know I, I'm always looking for more opportunities to weave in in my art and design background into my writing so I really you know just going back to what you said at the beginning I, I try not to keep them separate because um, I really feel that they do help feed into one another and I've always um, you know I can't I can't just switch to writing and not do anything arty you know it's just not me so you know it's quite interesting the way I found I can weave it through into my writing career but I also um, want to do more of that so I'm still always looking for opportunities to bring in my art and design background into what I'm doing with my writing yeah and I think I think that's really good too because <clears throat> sorry I think that's really good too because um, you're able to bring something different like if everyone had the exact same processes they'd end up writing the exact same styles of story and that's why I think it's really important mm. like for example as much as I read a lot I'm a huge movie buff so like I love to study you know anatomy of movie scenes and it's like you know how do you how do you take those movie scenes and adapt that with a book as well and like how do you you know take these other mediums and what you've learned from them to to make something different um, which kind of is a nice natural segue into talking about um, a tweet that you put up uh, on Twitter about uh, what it means to become an author and how 
no one has the exact same experience um, and how, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. So would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that tweet was just, um, had grown from, you know, had spring springboarded off something else, but basically what it was about was, um, you know, we get so much advice as writers and when you're a new writer, you, you're hungry for advice, anything that will help you kind of fast track drafting your first manuscript and getting something finished, you know. And um, But there, there's a lot, something that I've learnt over time, and I started writing, um, just to put it in context, I started writing when my, so seriously writing, I mean. So I was still a graphic designer. I was still, I was running my own design business from home. But I just decided that I wanted to pick up the writing. Um, and this was not long after my uh, first child was born. And the reason why, and so he's 15 now, so that gives you a little bit of a timeline. And so the reason why I started picking up the writing was because um, I had these um, parts of my day where he was uh, napping and it wasn't quite enough time for me to really do enough. I mean, I used to jump in and sort of do my design work and, or I do a little bit of um, painting, you know, fine art painting and things like that. But I just um, thought it's now or never, if I'm, if I'm going to start writing, it's now or never because I could just sit here with a notebook until he wakes up and I'll just write longhand in it and just brainstorm ideas. And I hadn't written since, and I'm sorry that I apologize. This is a very roundabout way of answering your question. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm listening, um, hanging on every word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So the last time I'd written was in high school. Um, so for me, naturally the place to pick up, um, writing again was that voice that I was developing in high school, which happened to be a 16 year old girl because I was a 16 year old girl. And so I thought, well, you know, that was the voice that was coming through to me in my head. And I was kicking around little ideas for picture books and things because that was where my head was at. I had a new baby and I thought, oh, you know, I'd love to write picture books. And I just had this voice in my head of this character, um, which in the end turned out to be Chloe from my latest book, Deep Water. But, you know, I had that, that was not my first published book. And so I started writing. I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew was that there was this category that I was interested in called YA. And of course I'd read YA books when I was a teenager, but it, the category wasn't as big back then. Um, and so I was always bleeding into reading adult books and things like that as well. But I found a lot of the mysteries and things that I was reading or, or that I was hungry for when I was a teenager. Um, I couldn't find a lot of them that were age appropriate to me being 15 or 16 or 13, whenever I started reading them. So I was sort of reading into my mum's collection of books, which was, there was a lot of horror in there. And, um, but I always sort of thought I'd love a creepy read, but I'd like something that is more with, with characters that I can relate to that are my age. Anyway, so I started writing and um, I had no idea what I was doing. And i sort of, well, I say I Googled, I didn't Google back then. I used some terrible search engine and found this 
um, writing forum, which was, back then was called the Blue Boards. It's now been folded into um, Squibby, which is the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators Forum. But it started out as this private forum called the Blue Boards. Okay. And I was on there trying to glean all this advice from all these, mostly American, because the Australian YA scene um, was really hard for me to tap into back then. 15 years ago. Um, and yeah, so there was so much advice and it's just, you, you get overloaded with, with all this advice of how you should be doing it. And what I was reading about was very uh, America centric. You know, this is how you query. This is how you format your query. Um, you know, the, this is how you approach an agent. These are the agents that are good. Here's how you should approach it all. You need to Americanize your language in your query. You need to Americanize your book. It was all of this sort of stuff that that was how I started out, you know, doing it all this way. And I think, and I, I think that advice is actually still very American centric, even to this day. Like I think that a lot of that advice yeah. is still very centered around America and not you know, Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was really interesting at the time because I was actually connecting with some other Australian writers just via um, somebody that I knew locally. Um, there was another mum who was a writer and also somebody that uh, a, a small group of writers that I met through the Australian Writers Centre when I did an online um, YA course there. And they didn't have all this in their head that I was reading about with all this American stuff about querying, you know, like pitching in Australia back then was very different um, to the way queries and everything is set up now. You, you had to send paper copies of things out to people. And, you know, it wasn't the dark ages. It was only 15 years ago, but it was all um, actually when I was doing this was, was many years after I'd started writing. So we're talking around 2011, something like that, yeah. um, when I was sending out my first queries. But there was just such an overload of advice. And so I thought I was doing everything correctly. I thought I was doing everything by the book. Um, you know, I, I felt a little bit superior in my knowledge that, you know, I had this, I knew what all the Americans were doing and that was what I was going to do. I'll get myself an American agent because all of the Australian agencies at the time, and there was a, less than there are now, were all closed to queries. And I thought, well, I can't get a foot in here. I can't get a foot in the Australian industry. So I'm going to have to pitch to American agents because I knew that there were American agents who represented Australian authors and those books had been published by Australian publishers. So I knew there was a way of doing it that way. And so I thought I was doing it all correctly. And in the end, my first manuscript didn't really go anywhere. Um, it was actually a very, very early draft of Deep Water, which is my latest release. Um, so 13 years after I sort of started writing that book, and after several different drafts of writing it, um, I finally got, you know, got, got a book deal for it. <laughs> so, you know, sort of 18 months or whenever it was ago. Um, and so, yeah, so in the end, overload of information. And like the way I ended up getting published was, was none of those ways that everybody told me was the way I had to do it. And you know, so my tweet recently was just that I was probably a little frustrated just in that 
we get so much advice. This is how you must do it. You know, if you're a real writer, you must write every day. Um, you know, you, you must um, format things this way. Um, you must be very, you know, super polite in all your dealings. Don't badger authors and editors. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't. And there's so much that we're, we as authors and writers, we're all tiptoeing around, trying not to be difficult, trying not to do the wrong thing. Um, and, you know, it's pretty stressful. And at the end of the day, we just want to write stories and get them out into the world. And there are definitely processes of how you have to do things. And there's definitely smarter decisions you can make in terms of how you meet people in the industry and, and how you go about things. But we get so many people telling us that we're doing things the wrong way um, or we should be doing things this way and there's no one right way to do anything and in terms of how I fell into getting my debut novel published um, I'd been through the ringer by that stage with the industry and um, I probably had about a hundred pages of small spaces written small spaces is my debut novel the one that was published first but it was actually the third novel that I'd written and, and it's amazing. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I had written probably about 100 pages of that and I um, was actually ready to quit the industry. So small spaces almost never happened <laughs> because I uh, was ready to walk. I'd, I was done. Um, I was so beaten down by this industry, which sounds really uh, sad and really overly dramatic. But it's but, very easy uh, to get to that point because, you know, to write a book, it takes a lot of effort and, you know, for it to sort of get yeah. dismissed out of hand by so many different things, you know, it can be crushing. It can. And that's why my advice always is to writers, you know, my advice is I don't give writing advice because I'm so sick of all the writing advice that I get and that we've all been bombarded with. But my only advice is that don't listen when people say there's this one right way to do everything and you'll succeed because there, there's so many different ways to get there. And for me, I had to go through writing a first novel that is the one that I had to learn how to write with, um, I, which was the very first early draft of Deep Water. It was um, kind of a bit of a mess. I didn't know at the time. I thought it was genius, you know, <laughs> I thought it was a masterpiece. <laughs> As you do. And I sent that out, yeah, and I sent that out into the world and got stacks of rejections. But I also got some really great feedback from a couple of editors um, and an agent who actually took the time to um, provide me some feedback and I realised that my the execution of my mystery was flawed um, and I couldn't face rewriting it at the time. So I kind of put it aside and started another book and then I kept returning to it and eventually, you know, I felt comfortable in picking it up again because I could see my way into how I wanted to write it and funnily enough, that was after I had written and published small spaces and had it be successful and have it get so much great feedback that I realized I knew what I'd tapped into there with the readers and what they enjoyed about my writing. So it was so much easier to apply that knowledge to this existing manuscript that I had. Um, and so I, I did go back and do that. And I rewrote Deep Water from the ground up again, which was probably by that stage, it's sixth iteration or something. And I'm not a person who writes 
um, who says, oh, well, you know, I'm going to write, it'll be the fifth draft of this novel will be the one that will be, the, you know, it'll be killer. That'll be the one that'll get published. Um, I write my first draft thinking this is my only draft. That's the way I write. You know, yeah. I, I like to have my first draft as being very polished. And of course, we all. I guess that comes in. down to that organisation that we were talking about before. That yeah. you're like you're putting in that prep work to yeah. begin with. That's right, because I don't intend to keep rewriting this novel over and over and over again. And from what I learned, you know, from this kind of roundabout way that I had to getting published was that each book that I've written has been somewhat different in terms of how it's come about and the amount of preparation I've put into it and the amount of planning that I've put into it. But there always has been plotting and planning because that's the way I write. Yeah. Um, but the, the second novel that I wrote was actually the one that scored me a literary agent in the US and, you know, with the big New York agency. And, you know, so I had thought I had done everything right. You know, I'd followed all the rules. I'd written this book. I'd queried correctly. I had, you know, I had all these um, full manuscript requests and extra material requests and, you know, synopsis requests and all this sort of stuff. So I sent and I managed to get this agent who was interested. She loved the book. She asked me to rewrite the whole thing to, to Americanize it because it was set in Australia. I did so. <laughs> I wanted every chance, yeah. every possible chance to get published because by this stage, I'd probably been doing this whole submission dance for about, you know, for, for a good couple of years. And I thought, mm, you know, I really need something to happen with this. So I'm going to jump through all these hoops and I'm going to be the model, model writer and everybody's going to, you know, want this manuscript. And so it went on submission for about a year <laughs> in the US. But that's, um, I, think, I guess, the thing it. too, when you say about the, um, the agent responding and saying to change it to an American story, you kind of you know, you get that nibble and you think, oh, I might never get this chance again. So like, sure, yeah. I'll change that. I'll change that. And, you know, you, you just want to please because yeah. you're told that this advice of, you know, the agent's always right and, you know, just do whatever you can to get published. And, you know, so yeah. it's kind of drummed into us. Absolutely. And, you know, because, and that's the advice that we often get, you know, it's, it's like, if you want to be published, if you want to be in this industry, this is how you do it. And you think, okay, I guess I'll jump on board, you know, even though, kind of red flags here and and little niggles there but you know this is but i guess the excitement of to do <laughs> the excitement of being published kind of just makes you miss that yeah and especially because for me it was my second book my second manuscript and i um you know i i really felt like because you know for anyone that's querying um especially with us agencies it is it's, it is hardcore. It is so competitive. Um, there, they, there's such a, such long waiting times. And if you get a nibble, um, you get, you know, a, a request for the full manuscript or just a request for a few chapters or anything. It makes your day because you're so used to going to your inbox and seeing nothing day after day after day. And you're thinking, why am I doing this? You know, and you're supposed to still get on with writing in the meantime. And it's so hard because you're thinking, is this pointless? Like, am I actually going to get anywhere ever? And the hardest part with that with writers is that we, it, you know, it kills your creativity. It, just this stress thinking, you know, like I'm, I'm writing. I mean, for me, 
um, personally, I was writing with publication in mind. So some people say, oh no, well look, you write for the love of it and everything else. I was writing because I want other people to read my words. So I was always writing to be published. I wasn't writing just to, to scratch a creative itch and yeah. oh well maybe I'll show it to a couple of my friends and stuff it's like no I want this to reach a lot of teenagers you know I want this to reach those teenage readers that were me when I was a teenager this this I'm writing this book for teenage me and all those teenagers like me that are looking for um, you know a mystery or a psychological thriller something a bit dark but it, it has characters that they can relate to that's their age their sort of you know problems and, and things that they encounter in life and so that was the niche that was what I wanted to write and I knew who I was writing for but actually getting it into their hands you know is this incredibly difficult process um, and so you know I, I thought everything was was you know going in the right direction and then my agent said to me, I, look, you know, I think we, we might have to make the decision, decision here. Should we shelve this for now? Um, what else are you working on? And so that was like really disheartening. But, you know, I'd had a year's worth of rejections <laughs> as preparation to know that, you know, this was probably going to happen. And it, it's really hard for me to, you know, when I put so much work into that novel, I'd revised it, I'd rewritten it. And also I had also done another revision on it for an editor who was super keen at a very large US publisher. And it still, and apparently it went to acquisitions twice there and it still didn't get over the line. So it's so disheartening. But by that stage, I'd started small spaces. And I thought, well, a lot of the rejections that I was getting were look we love we love the voice we love the writing you know Sarah's obviously a talented writer but it just doesn't have a big enough hook to stand out in such a competitive market and so I thought and and that was a contemporary novel sort of coming of age you know um, um, first love a little bit like very different to the first mystery that I'd written and <clears throat> excuse me I am um, so I thought, right, you want a hook, I'll, I'll write you a hook. Um, and so I had this idea that I was toying with about this, this girl who had this imaginary friend that comes back when she's a teenager. And I had started writing this, this psychological thriller, very, very different to what my agent had been representing me for. Um, and when I showed it to her, uh, I think I showed her the first 100 pages and she wasn't a fan. <laughs> she wasn't oh. a fan of it. Um, she wanted something similar to what I'd written before. And Which is kind of really... a joke, isn't it? Because it's like, well, I don't want this thing that you've written, but I want something that's almost mm. exactly the same as it. It's, you get yeah. this kind of advice where you're like, I don't know what you want. Like, Yeah. It's, it, it, and they don't know what they want. That's the other thing is that they, they all say, oh, we'll know it when we see it. And it's like, wow, that's really helpful. Thanks. And it's know? like, that'd be great if a book <laughs> took me an afternoon to bash out. It didn't take me, you know, months <laughs> to a year or something like that. And interestingly, you know, something that did happen with that agent too was that she, um, which I still find odd to this day, is that she would um, kind of um, pitch ideas to me about things I could write you know, as though I was, um, you know, like a ghostwriter or I just, you know, would write to a brief. Yeah, um, and she'd weird. say, oh, you know, like the, here's, you know, oh, I think this publisher might be looking for this kind of story. You could write this kind of thing. And I remember I wrote a few pictures, you know, because that 
being naturally creative, that would sort of springboard ideas in my head. And so I'd, I'd sort of write these pictures, um, you know, these, these short synopses, uh, short synopses of these story ideas and sort of run them by my agent thinking, yeah, I could see me writing a book like this. And then I sort of sat there one day and thought, what am I doing? You know, like I, she's supposed to take me on because she loves the stories that, that I come up with and that I write, you know? Um, And so we had a decision where I just sort of said to her, I think we might need to part ways because you don't really want this novel and this is the novel I really want to write. And she agreed with me. So, so we parted ways. So after all this whole dance that I had done years of trying to get attention of people in the industry, being out on submission, to all these US publishers, having US, all these US publishers reading my work, considering my work, going to acquisitions. And then I ended up parting ways with my agent. I was at the bottom again. And I had a hundred pages written of small spaces. I had the whole book planned out and I was ready to walk. And I, I kind of did. I did walk for, for a few months. I, I left. I just went, stuff it. I'll go back to, you know, I was still working my design career the whole time. I had a business to run had children, you know, small children to bring up. So I obviously just just adds, adds other components to it that you're just like, okay, I I can't Mm. do this anymore. Yeah. It's like hitting your head against a brick wall. And I just thought, um, you know, this is the definition of insanity. I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And I just keep coming back for more. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the end, I uh, quit, you know, so I kind of quit in my head. I was in tears all the time. I was stressed all the time. And, and I just thought, this is, um, what have I got myself into here? This is so hard. I'm doing everything that I've been told to do, you know? And, um, and so in the end, and that was the thing, I jumped through a lot of hoops, a lot of hoops. So it's not like I even received advice and sort of said, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, oh, no, that doesn't resonate with me. I won't worry. You know, I was doing yeah, everything. You were following that my everything agent, to the letter. To the letter. Everything yeah. my agent needed me to do, everything that editor, that that publishing house needed me to do to get her to the acquisitions meeting with all the material that she needed. I was writing and writing and stressing and and working around the clock and, you know, juggling kids and juggling my business and getting it done. And in the end, it was all for nothing, all for nothing, except that, of course, you know, um, I'd learned a lot. (laughs) I'd learned what I will accept, what I won't accept. I learned um, how to write better. I've thought about people in the industry and their expectations Um, and I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to write this psychological thriller that I'm writing because I love it. Um, maybe someone will love it. Um, my skills had improved. I'd written two manuscripts by that stage. So I wanted to break out of that mold a little bit with what I'd been doing. I wanted to kind of write it a little bit differently, different structure, um, non-linear, you know, add a few different things in there. It was more to entertain myself while I was writing it, you know, Um, and so then, you know, everything, all the convention that I thought of how to get published all just kind of went out the window because I just started, I finally finished this manuscript and, you know, God knows how, because some days I was so low, I felt so cut off from the industry. I felt like I was again, hitting my head against a brick wall. I was a glutton for punishment. I was coming back for more, but I thought, I really feel good about this book. I feel confident in it. And in the Australian industry particularly, 
I didn't feel like there was a lot of um, psychological thrillers around at that point in time. And um, I felt like there was an opportunity there to maybe bring in some more. And um, I, again, went to look at who I could query. And there were hardly, again, hardly any Australian agencies that were open for queries. So I had to look at the US again. And so I did. And so I started getting some interest from the US when all of a sudden one day I had a publishing house um, sent me an email directly saying, I've just read um, the query, uh, you know, the, a synopsis, short synopsis for this book you've written on your website. And um, would you be interested in, you know, or would you be willing to send it to me to read? And so I did. And so that was my first publisher. And um, which is such an interesting story. And it's such an interesting end to that story <clears throat> because it's kind of like, nobody says that that's what's going to happen to you. And yet like that, exactly. you know, you jump through all the hoops and then, and then that was the thing that did it. But I guess the thing I love about that story is that throughout all of this stuff, you still manage to hold on to like the creative integrity of, of your writing and, and, and writing the story that you wanted to write, because it does seem like particularly it's not just movies, uh, movies, sorry, it's not just books, it's movies and, and everything. See, everything seems to be about filling a market that's already there. And it's about, well, we want mm. stories that are like this because this is popular and, and it's not, it's, it's becoming less and less about that creativity um, yeah. on the artist side. And so I just love that, that you kind of held on to that creativity. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that everything that happened into leading up to my debut novel getting published, I think it was all very formative and I think it definitely helped me, but it more than anything, it toughened, it toughened me up. You know, I was already pretty tough. I didn't really need that much toughening. It was pretty brutal, but um, it, it really helped me decide how I was going to stand up for my writing, I suppose, you know, like I, what I was willing to compromise because I'd already compromised so much. And when it came to small spaces, there was a lot that I refused to compromise about uh, just um, not in a difficult way, but just mentally, like just in the back of my own mind, I thought if I'm told to do this or if I'm told to change this, I'm not willing to do that and I will go elsewhere. Um, and so, but in the end it all worked out. I mean, I had an editor that really loved the story and, you know, it, um, those first, funnily enough, those first hundred pages that I had shown my previous agent, my former agent, um, are very much unchanged in the final story of Small Spaces. So it, had I listened to her, and had I, she, she was giving me all this advice. She was quite an editorial agent and she was giving me all this advice on things I should change and none of it sat well with me. And that was at the point where we had to part ways, which was, you know, it was so galling after everything I'd done to get to that point that I was initiating that we part ways because I, you know, maybe I'd just hit my limit and it, it was enough, but it was more so that I could see her wanting to change this story that I was crafting. And I just wasn't willing to do that. And that's something that I have definitely stuck with um, all the way through now since then is that there's certain things that I'm not willing to change. And I know we receive all this advice as writers, you've got to be flexible. And I am like, I, you'll never find anyone that works harder than me. I, I work my butt off um, to, to get results of, of what, you know, 
people's expectations and things like that. But it's, um, there's certain things that I won't compromise on anymore just because I'd had this, this long journey that, you know, I learned so much about myself and why I'm writing and who I'm writing for. And, you know, there, there's always all this talk of gatekeepers and things in the industry. And it's incredibly frustrating for writers to be butting up against these gatekeepers all the time, whether they're agents, whether they're editors, whether they're um, parents or librarians, anything that's stopping us from getting our YA books into the hands of YA readers, teen readers. Um, you know, it's it's really frustrating. And some of them are necessary and, and some of them, um, you know, like, for instance, agents and things, um, well, agents and editors, obviously, they all have their finger on the pulse of the market. Um, yeah. But sometimes they don't, you know, and sometimes well, there's a will comes in and takes off and it's something that nobody could foresee you know that's, that's um, right yeah and, and I, so they I guess when I think about that I think about you know again books and movies and all that a lot of the major um stories that people love and that have resonated for for generations had a lot of pushback from from corporate yeah. because you know it's not quite what we're looking for and maybe you should do this and and often it's because the people who created it said no, it needs to be done this way is the reason why these stories have managed to go on to be such beloved stories for, for generations because mm. they didn't compromise on what was commercially successful at the time. It sort of makes yeah. them classic. And it's really hard because, you know, writers, we, we're in a bind, you know, because we, we want to... Um, stick up for ourselves and stick up for our stories but at the same time we don't want to be so closed off that we can't um, it's like that thing we were talking about earlier with sometimes not seeing typos when they're right under our noses you know there could be something that can be improved about the story that we just can't see and sometimes you do get a bit pig-headed or you get quite locked in with your story and you think um, you know no you know I, I don't want to budge on that but for me when I when I start to feel like that I just need some time and space from it. So I'll just put it aside and I'll go and remove myself from it, um, take a bit of a break. And when I, especially when I receive editorial feedback and things, I like to just put it aside because my reflex reaction straight away is not, 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 I'm not changing that. That's not happening. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You don't understand what I'm trying to do here. And, and, and I know that about myself having done that with, you know, three now four manuscripts you know i i know that i my first reaction is no one knows this story better than me um and you're all wrong and i'm right um and 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 i know that i have to close the document and let that that feedback just kind of sit sit in the back of my brain let my brain mull it over yeah go and do other things and then suddenly my mind starts of its own accord starts kind of um, fixing those problems and or you know sometimes you I receive feedback and I think you know and sometimes it can be the you know an, an editor might make a suggestion about a way to do it and I think that doesn't sound like me at all that doesn't sound like anything I would write into my story and so rather than reject it outright I take that piece of information I go back and I look at what their their core problem is and I find another way to to solve that problem that suits me and my writing style and the story and the characters because often they'll give a suggestion but they don't necessarily want you to do it that way Um, but it's just more that 
oh, look, you know, the reason why I'm suggesting this is because back here you've said this. Um, and so I like to come up of my own way of, of solving that problem. And, um, you know, something that happened with uh, when I was writing Deep Water was that my deadlines towards the end of it were quite quite rushed and um, and I sort of rushed the ending when I wrote it um, it, it was similar, you know, it played out in a very, it, well, it played out in the same way that it does in the final copy, but just in terms of the way I had crafted the scenes and the way I wrapped up storylines for people, um, it was a bit rushed when I did it the first time. And I said to my editor and my publisher, I feel this is a little bit too first drafty. Um, it was just the nature of the way I had written it. And that was that I, um, and I'll, I'll revisit this in a sec, but I ended up, um, once I received their feedback and they'd given me some suggestions, they, the, those suggestions didn't quite sit, sit with me well. It didn't, I, I didn't sort of think immediately, oh, yes, that's, that's you know, I, I can see the error of my ways here. I, I thought, no, 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 that doesn't sit right with me. Let me have that feedback and let me sit with it. And I rewrote the ending completely differently um, of how just just the um, the ending chapters of how I wanted to wrap things up and I, I'm very comfortable now with the way I did that and it is better infinitely better than what I did the first time however this also goes back to um, learning about myself and what I've learned with writing these manuscripts the first time well when I wrote small spaces I was not under contract so I wrote this novel at my own pace um, I wrote it the way I wanted to write it. Um, I even revised and edited it at my own pace um, until it was acquired. And then after that, my editing deadlines were very reasonable. You know, I had all the time in the world to massage this story into the story it became when it was published. With Deep Water, it was very different. So I was actually, um, and again, the, these are things that you learn once you're actually in the industry as opposed to being a writer trying to crack into the industry you think oh it sounds great being you know um being given a book deal on a book you haven't written yet um you yeah, know then I was, you've got to write it <laughs> yeah and so i was offered a book deal based on a pitch um a synopsis and the first i think it was 60 70 pages or something like that so i had obviously done a lot of work and, and me being a planner and a plotter I had planned out the whole story as well um, because I had to, to write the synopsis. Um, and, but then the deadlines were rather intense um, for somebody that writes, you know, sort of like, oh, what was it? Almost 400 words, uh, 400 page uh, book. So, uh, which is about a, a 92,000 words or something. So it's yeah. not, you know, it's not a slim book. Um, and it's, and, you know, my storylines are complicated. <laughs> um, the structure is not straightforward. Um, and there's lots of clues and red herrings. It's a lot of thinking and, you know, uh, nuancing and massaging the story. Anyway, so what I learned about myself is that I will never write under contract again because it was something that I, it really compromised my creativity, um, the sleep deprivation, everything, just trying to turn this book around. It's not a way I enjoy writing. And so, you know, that's the thing is that from the outside, people who writers who want to be published would think, oh, that's such a good problem to have. You know, I'd never say no to that. I'd do whatever they want. I'll jump yeah, through any And that's hoops. great to say until you've done it. And in which case, you know, you until might realize it doesn't it. work for you. And that's, that I guess comes back to 
the core sort of theme of this whole discussion, which is that everyone works differently. Now I know writers who work under pressure who will mm. sit there and they won't get things done until someone says, you have to have this done by this date. Yes, and then they're just deadline. like, yeah, boom, off they go. But yeah, like I think you and I sound like we have very similar styles that like, I, I don't work well to a deadline. Mm. Um, and so to me, like, I feel like I would be very much the same as you that I don't think it, I would enjoy that at all working to those deadlines. And it's funny because I'm, I am a deadline, you know, in my design career, I was, I was always a, um, a design oriented person. I, I would have to, um, you know, meet deadlines. You, you just have to get it done. And so I always thought that a deadline was good for me. Um, but I'm even finding my own self-imposed deadlines I'm hopeless with. <laughs> and, you know, uh, but I'm also not one of those writers that thinks, oh, la-di-da, you know, I'll just write when the muse hits, you know, yeah, I, I am a I'll working write, writer. I'll write once every three weeks because that's when yeah. I've been bothered doing it. Like, yeah, obviously. Which is cool, which is cool if you want to take a decade to write a book, you know, um, but I, I'd like to get books out faster than the two years I'm having, you know, between them at the moment. Um, I'm amazed that writers manage to um, work, you know, some of them work really fast, especially um, indie writers, you know, indie writers can, some of them put out four books a year and it's incredible the, the pace at which well, they can. I can was write, actually, you know? I was actually listening to um, a podcast, um, the Grey and Gold podcast. It's really good if you want to listen to it. It's not specifically about writing. It's just people talking to different people from different walks of life, but they were talking mm. to one of these indie published people and he treats it as though he's doing lines of code because he's a coder. And so oh, he right. knocks out books in like days. And I'm like, yeah. how do you do that? <laughs> like, that's <laughs> not how my brain works. It couldn't work for that way for me. But yeah, it's just interesting how different people can approach it from different angles. Well, and it comes back to that advice where you'll get people in, tra in traditional publishing who will tell you that's not the way to write. You don't write um, treating writing um, like this product and you'll only, we'll only ever release one book a year at, you know, at least from you because we have to have all this lead in time and we've got to have all this promotional time and all of that's very valid because that's how the traditional publishing machine works. Yet there are people who are indie publishing who do it very differently and it absolutely works for them. And it all comes back down to there's no one right way to do anything. And, um, you know, if, um, and, you know, there's this silly divide between indie publishing and traditional publishing, which is now luckily being closed with more authors going hybrid and they're doing a bit of both because it's all producing books for readers. It's all the same industry, but there's just a lot that comes with traditional publishing where we're told this is the way we do it because we've always done it this way. And yet the, the thing is that the world is constantly changing. Technology is constantly changing. The way people consume media is changing. Even the generation of teenagers that we have now, they read differently to the way I read when I was a teenager because I didn't have a million and one distractions. You know, I had five, five TV channels max on the TV, you know, yeah. that were free to air. I didn't have 
devices. I didn't have constant, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have, um, you know, um, constant chat with my mates. Um, you know, we, we, we would sit down and we'd read books and things because that was our escapism, either that or whacking something on the VCR to watch, you know. Um, but now there's just so many distractions for teenagers and that's why I write the type of books that I write because um, I need um, a teen reader to pick up my book and not be able to put it down because they, if there's any point, it's also the way I craft the story because if there's anywhere in that story um, that lags, that, that encourages them to put it down, they might not pick it up again because they've got a million and one other things that they can do with their time um, no, that they can you know, that distract them. And yeah. I think um, too, particularly with younger audiences, um, the methods in which they're actually reading the stories is changing too, because you've got like e-readers like the Kindle and stuff like that, which is why I think there's been such a boom in the indie publishing market, mm. you know, as well. And, um, you know, the, the fact that they consume it in that way is different again to, to reading a book and, you know, like you've got to factor in, the different, well, like you can't just say, oh, well, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we, we did it this way. So we've got to do it this way all the time. It's like, well, no, things change and mm -hmm. you've kind of got to adapt to that. And as you say, like some people are going with like a hybrid approach because that works for them. And that's, I guess that same thing that it just, it comes back to, you know, there's no one way to do any particular thing. So um, yeah. one thing I did want to say, speaking of a, a YA audience, um, is when writing for a YA audience, do you have them in the back of your mind while you are writing and thinking like, do you ever, censor isn't the best word, but do you ever, do you ever think of um, scaling back some of the content because you're writing for that younger audience or do you um, let them see it all? <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I do. Um, so I suppose what I would, yeah, I wouldn't really say I censor myself. I know what you, what you're getting. Yeah. That's at. what I'm saying. It's um, like what not a great choice of words, but yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I definitely craft, um, differently knowing who's reading it at the end, as opposed to if, if I was writing an adult book. And the reason I do that is, and the only, and the things that I do, there's certain things where I won't go what I would consider to be too far in terms of content um, that might be violent or, um, I mean, there's, there's obviously action and there's like some gruesome stuff in some of my books, but there's a, there's a line that I won't go too far across um, because I am still very aware of gatekeepers like librarians and parents who yeah. I, I want my books to reach as many teen readers as possible. So I, uh, the, the 12 and 13 year olds who are just starting to get into the category all the way through to 18, 19 year olds who still enjoy reading it all the way through to people in their twenties, thirties and forties that love YA. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm 33 and I still read YA books. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm 46 and I love them. So um, I, I don't write for the 20, 30s and 40 year olds in mind. Um, the fact that they love them is 
such a massive bonus. It's, it's the cream on top, but I do write with my teen readers in mind because, and very, I suppose more specifically me as a teen reader thinking, Oh, you know, because I'm still in that mentality of when I was 16, 17, you know, I, I pick up these books like any YA book I pick up and I'm, I'm transported straight back to being that age, you know, and, yeah. and I, I read them as, as a teenager and, um, so yes, I do. I do definitely think carefully about the content, even down to the number of swear words it might have, or whether it really needs an F word. You know, can I use a different word? Just because I don't want there to be any reason for any librarian at some school somewhere in Australia or overseas or anywhere that that picks it up and goes, oh, you know, well our policy is we don't really encourage you know swear words, and so and so they won't. They may not recommend that book to readers or only to the older the seniors at the school because it's got some swear words or some kind of content so so it, it is a little bit of a balancing act of writing dark stories but also keeping realistic characters realistic dialogue but still wanting to reach um, a large number of teen readers and getting it over the line in terms of with schools and at libraries and with parents and things like that. But I definitely would never um, alter or censor the story just to please gatekeepers or anything like that. And if they choose not to recommend it to students because it's got um, a couple of swear words or something um, or some slightly older teen content, then it's fine if they want to recommend that to older teens and not younger teens. The younger teens will find it anyway. And if it's yep. in their library, they, they're allowed to borrow it. Um, but I definitely, I definitely do think of those end readers all the time when I'm writing um, because I'm trying to please them. I'm thinking, what would they love to see next? How can I freak them out? Um, what, will, what will keep them guessing here? And the feedback that I get from teenagers, uh, which is awesome, you know, I get a lot of teenagers contacting me via Instagram and um, they send me and this is what's brilliant about writing in this day and age and with social media is that teenagers um, teen readers and um, you know children kid readers can contact um, authors directly and just say hey I loved your book you know back in the day I'd send a handwritten fan letter yeah. off to a publishing house that would never make it into the hands of the author but, um, you know, these I, I days, guess it's the opposite of that agent feedback, that it's something that really boosts your confidence rather than crushes yeah. it. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's, it is, yeah, it really does. It's helped me. Um, I go back and I read through these messages I've received from teenagers and it's so validating to know that what I'm doing and the way I like to work and the way I want to write and who I'm writing for and why I'm doing it is all confirmed when I read these messages from teenagers because and and then if I get some editorial feedback that doesn't sit right I can stick to my guns because I know I know the feedback that I've received you from can the say I get it I know end. I know that that they'll yeah. enjoy this because they've enjoyed things in the past exactly. um, well I think you've just given the perfect answer to that question um, because I think it's really important to not coddle teenage audiences um, because they are on the cusp of being adults. And so they can mm. deal with a certain level of, of darker themes. And I think sometimes people don't give teenage audiences enough credit that they can deal mm. with that sort of stuff. But you also hit the nail right on the head when you said um, that it's great that people like me in my thirties or, you know, even people in their twenties um, love the books, 
but it's not who you're writing it for because I do feel like, and I've said this on my YouTube channel before, but I do feel like a lot of the markets are pushing YA onto the say like mid to late 20 year olds um, who are enjoying it probably because they have more money. But I do feel Mm. like the, um, the teen audiences are kind of getting left out in the cold a little bit because they're kind of still appealing to that same market that was YA 10, 15 years ago, but that they've aged out now. So I do worry that sometimes we, or the market is trying to like sort of age up YA. So it Mm. it makes me super happy to hear that you're like, no, I'm still worried about like those 16 year olds in my mind. Like they're the ones I'm writing for. Mm. And you know, and it, it, it comes down to everything with, you know, we always, uh, YA authors, we often get this criticism in reviews from older readers that say, you know, this protagonist is so frustrating. It's so immature the way they're acting and, you know, and it's, and it's Welcome so to being a teenager. Because, exactly. And they've forgotten what it's like. And yet when the teenagers read those protagonists, they um, relate to them. And it's so much more important for me to know that I've nailed it with teen readers than with older readers. And because I think if you're frustrated by, if you're in your twenties or thirties or forties and you're reading YA and you say, Oh, it's, you know, the other thing sometimes is um, older readers who, who have read a plethora of books and teen readers, of course, are, you know, such hungry readers and they read, you know, masses and masses of books. It's amazing how many they get through but somebody in their forties that reads um, a mystery of mine and says, Oh, it was a bit predictable. I think, well, you've got decades of reading under your belt where you are thinking you might've read every kind of variation of mystery storyline. Oh, it's a bit predictable. And the, and the, you know, the, the protagonist makes some silly decisions. And I just think, see, this is why you aren't my target audience because I'm not saying I I don't um, dumb anything down for teen readers or anything like that. Quite the opposite um, because I know what they can read and what they can handle. Um, But I'm definitely thinking of the teen reader. They are my end reader in mind and I need to create protagonists that are relatable. And yes, of course they're flawed. Of course they make silly decisions because they're not a 35 year old woman who's, you know, some Mary Sue that's absolutely perfect that you want to read about. You know, um, they are um, a a flawed teenager who's having hormonal, you know, issues and problems with their parents and making decisions and confused because they haven't got that life experience. And so that's the thing too, that like, sorry, you go first. No, no, that you go. That's fine. Oh no, that's right. I was just going to say that, um, you know, these people, like if they, if they think that a 16 year old is, going to make sensible choices and think things through rationally. They have not been around a 16 year old in a very long time. (laughs) Um, And you know, I guess it glossed over. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I guess it comes back to again, like a few years ago when the, the it movie came back out, uh, came out and um, you know, that everyone was talking about the book and everyone was talking about the movie and they were saying, Oh, you know, and the kids are swearing, it's terrible. And I was like, yeah, if you think teenagers don't swear in real life, you are insane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it comes back to that fine line that I'm trying to walk where, you know, naturally I'm, I'm writing dialogue and I've, I'm peppering it with swear words and this and that. And, and then I, when I go back through and do an edit, I have to go back through and I try to eliminate some of those. And I know some other YA authors just won't do that. And then their labels get, their books get labeled 
um, as issues books and gritty and everything else. And I am, you know, very unashamedly trying to, I write very commercial books. My books are genre books. I don't write literary books. You know, I, I don't write um, what I would call issues books. And if people read you know, literary elements and, and, you know, kind of contemporary issues into my books. That's fantastic. Again, that's a bonus. But what I'm doing is I'm writing because I'm an entertainer and I'm writing to entertain my readers. So I don't write with any of these things in mind about like ticking a quota or thinking, oh, this will get me onto the CBCA shortlist, you know, or anything like that. I have, obviously, I have no experience in, no, it was all a fluke of what I did with small spaces, just in terms of how it went on to be shortlisted for so many literary Well, that's awards. the thing that I was going to say is that um, it's ironic because you did get shortlisted to the CBCA yeah. awards. And, and obviously, you know, some of the people who were, you know, Oscar baiting that kind of stuff, like trying to make stuff that they know would get them an award. They probably didn't get on, but you got on because yours came across as authentic. And I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's something that you can't, you know, you, you could never predict. I mean, you know, you see these shortlists and it always surprises me when I'm on one. And it's, it's such a pleasant surprise because I think that's great because then more, more people get to hear about my book and it reaches more teenagers. That's the big bonus of being on shortlists is that, you know, it raises the profile of the book a bit more to librarians or, you know, um, teachers or something to be able to recommend it onto their students or, you know, the students hear about it through whatever channel, you know, on social media and things like that. So that's the huge bonus of, of shortlists. And um, I think that's particularly with the um, CBCA because I feel like you can have a lot of swearing and, and, you know, darker themes in there. But if it goes on the CBCA list, it is getting into school libraries. It is, yeah. it is getting and it gets parents going to pick it up. And on the front. Yeah, that golden yeah. sticker on the front. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it is, it's, it's such a, a boon for the book. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, it is really interesting thinking about, you know, writing for that teen audience so that it's authentic for them, but also so that you um, are able to get it into their hands. You know, it, it's a little dance and I, and it certainly doesn't dictate how I write. I write the story how I want to write the story. I think I'm, maybe I'm lucky in that my, just the way I happen to write is it, it, it satisfies both the teen readers and older readers, but it also satisfies the gatekeepers. So yep. I've, I guess I've, I'm lucky that I've got that combination, but I certainly would never compromise the story. Um, you know, I think the most important thing for me is always just thinking about that reader at the other end. And it's very easy for me to do that now because I have teen readers contacting me and giving me feedback straight to my face um, about what I've written and what they've read of mine. And when you are a, a writer wanting to be published, it's sometimes it's hard to lose sight of that because you get so sucked into this world of submissions and trying to please agents and trying to please editors and publishing houses and what do they expect of me and and the book is morphing and changing and you're revising and revising and you're losing sight of who of what your end goal is and that is putting that book into the hands of a teen reader who's going to love it and then read it five times and set, give it to all their friends so they can all sit around and discuss it and you know a, a huge compliment I had just recently was a, a teen reader 
contacted me and just on Instagram, just to tell me that she and her friends just loved my books and that all their private jokes that they have amongst their circle of friends come from my books. And, you know, that, that, that all, and I, that like, I nearly cried, you know, <laughs> I'm not one of those people that's like, Oh, blubber fest, you know, but that was so touching. Um, and I thought it invalidating, you know, well, I guess, I thought, yeah. you know, if, if you sort of, take a step back for that though like you think about the massive journey that you've had to go on to get this book published mm. to get it in front of the, the you know uncompromising a- angles you've got to take with certain people you've had to fight hard for that story so to get that validation like it's it's not just that they've read the book and they give you the validation it's validating that constant fight that you had to have on the way up yeah yeah absolutely and and it's it's definitely um, what I keep at the front of my mind now as I'm drafting a new psychological thriller for these readers, um, I'm, not, I'm not drafting it for an editor. I'm not drafting it for a publishing house. I'm drafting it for these readers. And I know what they love about my books now because they've told me. Um, I know what they, um, you know, the kind of characters they like in my books because they've told me. Um, so it's, and I'm certainly not, you know, the story will go where the story will go, but I, at least I have the confidence now in that I, and the benefit and the bonus of having had those conversations with readers at the other end. And, and, and all I can say to writers who are trying to break in is just try to have that faith that you will eventually reach those readers. And when you do it, you know, it will, it will have made so much of that journey worth it. Um, but more than anything, you'll be happy that you didn't compromise on certain things to get there. And when you are in the industry, it is going to be so much easier. Well, I don't know. It depends on who you ask, you know, because you could write another book and then the publisher might not want it, you know, or they might want something different, but there are other options as well. And as we were talking about with indie publishing and hybrid publishing, it, you don't have to, people don't need to put all these books that they absolutely loved crafting. They don't need to put them all away in the bottom drawer anymore. You know, there, there's other things that you can do. And I, I hope that the industry um, does continue to morph and change in this way. And um, that the ebook popularity, I think, will continue to grow. And I hope that traditional publishers will get on board with lowering the price of ebooks to be more competitive with, you know, um, the indie first publishers, uh, sorry, the digital first publishers, and also with indie publishers. Um, because uh, at the moment, you know, some of those ebook prices are quite prohibitive um, for traditional published books. But yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where where things go from here, and you know, pandemic times has also made the yeah, industry that's another spanner in the works for some people. It has, <laughs> yeah, and I think that people who are digital first are doing a lot better <laughs> than yeah. you know people who have their books needing to go into libraries and bookshops that people can't access. Um, but yeah, so it'll be, but you know, teen readers will always be there. They'll always be hungry for those books and they'll always be distracted by a million other things. So we just have to make those books like really good. <laughs> Super amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I guess the other thing, one last thing I'll say is, um, you know, you've demonstrated what you were saying before about not having to put things in the bottom drawer forever. Um, in that your second book was actually your first book that you had given up on and then you you know, yes. you, you managed to tweak it and rework it. Like someone could have a full book 
and you know you might come back to it and again um referencing stephen king because apparently that's what i'm doing today um he had his massive book under the dome. <laughs> he wrote that for, it was decades. He kept uh, yeah. pulling it out and saying, you know, Oh, this is, it's, I can't get this. It's too big. I can't get it. So he put it away, bring it back. Like just, you know, it, it can take, you know, you a couple of years to, to do your first draft of something, but like, don't discount it as, Oh, well, that was a waste of time. Like you can always bring things back. Yeah. And that, all comes back down to that advice again of there's no one right way to do anything because exactly. yeah that's the whole um, theme of you know this, this I, I yeah and I hate this advice that where people say and I see other authors doing this too and and it, it irks me every time where they say oh you know that was your practice book just put it away it's you know like put it away in the bottom of the drawer and start something else and I think no, <laughs> you yeah. know, have faith well, in that you wanted to craft that story. What well, was it about the, that story? Yeah. Sorry. One of the things that I can't stand, one of the advice, it's basically the same advice, but it's slightly worse, is when you get these people who say, oh, you'll have to write like five or six books um, before you actually write your, your real one. And I'm like, well, you don't have to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you don't have to write six <laughs> no. different stories that will sit on a shelf and never do anything like, that seems like terrible advice to mm. me. It sounds very counterproductive. It is. And that might've worked for that author. And so in some ways they're justifying that that's, that, that was their journey. And so therefore they want everyone else's journey to have been that hard too, because be you hard, know, yeah. they've had a tough time. And for me, it's the same as what I was saying, where every time I write, a first draft of a book, I go in with the intention that this is the only draft of this book that I'm going to write. You know, this is, this is the book I'm writing it. And it's only once you've got all the way through the first draft, you, you might go back and revise it, or you might rewrite it from the ground up. But you know, some, some people write very polished first drafts. I tend to, I, because I often edit as I go. So each writing session, I'll edit what I wrote the day before. And I'm always going back to the beginning and reading it from the beginning and checking pacing. And so I do a lot of in whereas some people like to literally just draft a book where they sit down and they knock it out and they mm. don't go back and just edit get it and, down on paper yeah and that's also a very valid way of working but for them then they will do maybe four you know three or four different revisions before it's ready to go and for me by that stage I'm ready to move on to another book so I try to make my first drafts very very clean and polished and then when I go back and do a revision it's often just to do with where I've got a plot hole or I've got something where pacing's not working and I've got to figure something out um, and then of course you then do revisions when you start to get editorial um, feedback and things from the publishing house um, but yeah it's, it's the same thing that that the whole thing of um, oh look you'll probably it'll probably take 10 years for you to break in um, you know that's one of those cliched bits of advice it did happen to take that long for me it took a bit longer but um, I did get a lot of attention even with my first book even though I hadn't executed the the um, the mystery the you know in an effective way but I had a whole conversation with an agent at the time who said, Oh, I could see me pitching this to random house. And, you know, and it could have just gone, it could have gone another way at the time. And, and that would have been my first book. And I probably by that stage would have been writing it for, you know, it might've taken me five years to write that one. 
But then, you know, some people will write a breakout novel and it took them three months to write and it's just, it just hits on something, you know, some, something that hasn't been seen or just the way it's written or something like that and it becomes a success. So, again, it's just that, that kind of cliched advice that you get. Um, it's, it's really tedious because, um, you know, there's, there's only the right way that happened for that person. And for their next book, it could be completely different again. And so for me, and and I guess the other thing you've got to remember too, is that like that person might be telling you the advice that they had, they might've become popular in the nineties or the early two thousands. Well, that's a different market to now too. So it's It's obviously completely relevant to now. That's yeah. right. Not only is it the the person that has different um, experiences, but the time can have a different experience too. Yeah, and you know the the whole thing with with me is I've put so much time into where I've you know to, to get to where I am at the moment. But there were so many sacrifices along the way that that is why I can't bear the idea. I can't bear the thought of these other manuscripts and pieces of writing that I've started and worked on and have put aside. I, I, I can't bear the idea of them never having their time in the sun. And because I had to sacrifice a lot to carve out time to write, um, to juggle my design career and children, a lot of stress, a lot of you know, just sacrificing personal time. You know, I'd rock up to the computer at eight o'clock every night after my kids had gone to bed and write until 2am. And for those stories to never see the light of day, some authors might be happy to say, you know, to, to say, oh, well, you know, I had to learn how to write with those books and no one, they'll go in the bottom drawer and no one will ever see them. But for me, I look at the, those stories and I see the seed of what I was trying to do there. And now I've got the skills to be able to write them better. So if I've got the actual, um, you know, uh, the strength to go back in and rewrite them or to revise them and fix those problems that, that were what made me put it aside, then I'm going to do that because I hate to think that that was kind of wasted, you know, that, that it's going in the bottom drawer and nobody's going to get to enjoy that because when I was writing them, there was a reason why I wrote them and I really enjoyed writing them. And I really knew that the only reason they never made it out into the world is because they never got past an agent or they never got past an editor. And that's not to say that the readers at the other end uh, are not going to enjoy it. And so, you know, there's other ways of publishing these days. And so people can get their stories out there and bypass, you know, those people still have it professionally edited, you know, they can pay for that, but they can still get their hands, those stories into the hands of people and not be like me where they feel like they need to just quit the industry because nothing in this industry should make you quit writing and want you to just drop everything. And if you're finding that industry people are making you do that, then it's time to take a deep breath and look at another way of getting your stories into the hands of those readers. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's a perfect message to um, end this on. So thank you so much for doing this. It, it, honestly, I've just been sitting here listening to you and then occasionally <laughs> I think, oh, I should probably actually say something, shouldn't I? <laughs> like, um, so I guess um, where can people find you? Like if people are wanting to look 
into more of your books or anything? Where can people find you? Uh, well, probably the best point of contact um, for all my links would be to go to my website, which is sarahepsteinbooks.com. Um, but um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Um, yeah. So, but it, all the links are on my website, which is sarahepsteinbooks.com. E 